Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 10th of February. Um, not February, May. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's it almost become like right this now. inside yeah. joke that I messed the date up. But I'm not doing it to be cute, I promise. I actually have no idea what the day is ever. Um, why would we? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Good start. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. Um, it's just me and Tammy and Andy today. Uh, we don't have a guest, but you know, it seems like a episode. You know, I feel like we have two guests who are here with us through their work, um, and we're going to discuss two pieces today. One of them is by Toby Hazlitt. I'm sure a lot of you read this essay. Uh, it was in M plus one. Uh, it was. I don't know how to describe it except to say that, A, I thought it was excellent, and B, I thought that um, what it was was sort of a reminder and a reframing of what happened last summer during the uprisings um, and a glimmer into, not a glimmer, a glimpse into like what the politics of that might actually mean um, and what we could do with it, right? Like there is, it is not just like a, hey, remember last summer piece. There is really engagement with politics through James Boggs, through Martin Luther King, what he was writing right before he died, I found it to be a very you know, strangely hopeful piece in some ways. Um, we also have a piece by Brendan O'Connor, a friend of the podcast, uh, um, and uh, his piece was in The Baffler. Both of these came out this week. Brendan's piece was about sort of organizing and questions about force the vote, which if you don't know was something that was started I think by Jimmy Dore, right, the YouTube guy, <laughs> yeah. and popularized by Brianna Joy Gray, who used to work on the Bernie campaign, now has her own podcast with Virgil Texas of Chapo fame. And that, um, and a question of like, what, what do those types of political moments look like in the absence of real organizing? And what does real organizing mean? Are those good summaries of the two arg- arguments? I think so. Yeah, okay. and they also kind of nicely overlapped a lot in a lot of places. Right. Definitely. Right. Yeah. So, like, the central question, I think, between the two of them is, like, what do we do now? And I think that that question is actually very relevant given uh, what Joe Biden did in his address to the Congress and the Senate. I think that's what it's called, right? Or it's um, whatever it was called. <laughs> the fake state of the union. Um Where it seemed like a lot of the, you know, I think that afterwards you have a lot of people who are on the left saying, wow, that was the best that maybe we could hope for, right? And celebrating a lot of the stuff that was promised in there. This is something we've talked about before, which is how does the left sort of organize at a point where it's been defeated, right? Um, In terms of the Bernie Sanders campaign, where many people are looking at sort of Democrat machine politics and saying there's no way to beat this. But at the same time, during a time outside of sort of foreign policy and immigration concerns where Joe Biden, it seems to be doing a lot of what Bernie Sanders might have done, right? Now, you can argue yeah. that it's a distilled or watered-down version of it, but I think it's, I don't think that anyone can rightfully say that, like, the cynical, most cynical version of Joe Biden is the one that we're seeing right now, right? Can you, yeah, can you refresh my everyone's memories? What, what did he say in this? This is the third, quote-unquote, third Biden plan, right? There's, like, 
There's infrastructure, there's recovery infrastructure, and there's like a third one this week. I don't know what the third one is. Tammy, yeah. what, what, what was yeah. in this Biden plan? Well, um, do you mean, yeah, so he gave a speech today um, talking on the 10th, talking about, um, you know, jobs and responding to some criticisms of what a lot of people in the center are now seeing as just an overly generous welfare state plan or infrastructure plan, like all of the things he's introduced so far. So yeah, I think that's accurate, Andy. I mean, this is kind of like the third, perhaps in the series of kind of like forward-looking speeches that Biden's giving. I mean, one of the things that I was really irritated by today was, I mean, he seemed to basically capitulate to the critique around his welfare um, you know, plan and essentially promising that we are going to go back to welfare to work. Um, so yeah, so going back through this kind of like Clintonian, you know, job search requirements placed on welfare and stuff. So we're seeing a little bit of kind of like a creeping back, a clawing back of some of these promises. So I think it's, yeah, as Jay was saying, we're sort of maybe at a pivot moment, maybe at, you know, we kind of need to just keep an eye on what's going on, but also just to think about our orientation to electoral politics. Like, is this where we're really going to be winning? Right. And the, and even stuff like that, where it's like, can we, how do we make it so that Joe Biden's welfare program is, uh, lives up to the promises that Joe Biden seemed to give, right? Um, it's not like a huge sweeping revolutionary fight, right? It is a procedural fight and sort of a incremental fight. And that feels very different than what, you know, true believers of the Bernie Sanders campaign and the people who were out protesting um, last yeah. summer seemed to want, right, or what they seemed to give. And yet we seem to be somehow in this place where the placating of those energies, uh, and this is something, you know, we should talk about in regards to Toby's piece, um, that there does seem to be some placation that's going around, right? And you can point, people point to all sorts of different things and the word co-option gets thrown around even though nobody quite can define it, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so what do you, like, some people blame corporate, you know, they say, well, when the banks do Black Lives Matter or when the banks celebrate Pride Week, then nothing matters, right? And just like, okay, you know, but I don't, like, what's the actual <laughs> story that you're telling there, right? Like, um, because the NBA, everyone in the NBA is kneeling somehow, like the stuff that's happening in the street doesn't matter anymore, right? right. Um, like I don't, I understand the mechanisms that you're talking about and the critique. I just don't understand what the sort of end of that story is. Um, and similarly, I think with Brendan's piece, where it's just like you have people saying, "Let's do this force the vote thing," and then sort of turning on uh, AOC and um, you know basically saying we can't have centrist Democrats doing anything, we have to sort of show them where they stand, show everyone where they stand. And then you have this big argument that I guess blew up among the podcast left as a, you know, maybe that's the best term to say it around, uh, you know, ultras. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but all of that seemed to under, like, look, all of that is very micro, right? And within our circles. But I would say that it, the reason why these fights are happening is because I think a lot of people don't quite know what to do. Right, and they and they see these two things as competing visions, um, organizing through electoral politics, uh, looking to try and w have every victory that you can, or people who uh, you know l want to literally light things on fire. So, um, yeah. yeah, and I think with Brendan's piece, 
I mean, he's someone also who has been active in the labor movement and active in DSA. He really wants to kind of get into the politics of DSA and figure out like wh- where is DSA located on in this like bifurcated view worldview, you know, like, are they trying to do a kind of electoral politics that will ultimately be successful? Can we actually have like a kind of labor party, a third party, or is it something that's sort of, you know, sitting in between a kind of social movement politics and, you know, electoral politics? Yeah, yeah, we can talk, let's talk about that second, because the first thing I want to talk about is Toby's piece in M plus one. And um, I, I, I want to read something to you and we can go through and read parts of the piece and sort of talk about them. But the first thing I want to talk about was, he writes, at the DNC last fall, we saw how the uprising may be remembered, a sunny, noble blur, a soaring rhetoric, and quote, peaceful crowds, a fabulous alternative to the rawness on the ground. Now, I think that that is sort of a direct indictment of what happens when this type of stuff enters the Democratic Party. And I, you know, I don't know. I Mm -hmm. think the history here is pretty clear, especially the recent history, right? Um, I found the DNC's, uh, you know, at the Democratic National Convention, for the people who don't remember, there's a lot of Joe Biden sitting with families, you know, <laughs> and doing his whole, like, I hear you, you know, I hear, you know me, I hear you, you know, like, I'm listening, I'm a good listener. Uh, you have, you have, a. am giving you my Biden word on that. What, what's that thing he says, like a Biden's word or something like that? It sounds like, it sounds like a Grave of Thrones or something like that. Um, and yet there's, there's nothing that came out of that. There's no sort of plan. There's, you know, and then of course, immediately he's saying, we need to fund the police more, right? So yeah. Um, the only demand that came out of the protests, which I don't actually think that, like, you know, you can say every single person there who went to those protests was saying, screaming for defunding of the police, but it was the clear alternative that was proposed by those who were putting out the messaging, sort of ignored, right? And then for that, you have Hillary Clinton with the mothers of the movement, um, mm-hmm. right? And sort of standing with uh, mothers of people who had been shot by the cops and part of her, like, sort of Robbie Mook led way of saying let's just you know all we have to do is win back some of the black vote that obama got and that we win and then you have this like atrocious campaign that starts in harlem at a church and you know um we all know sort of the cynicism of that and how that ended up so uh yeah i don't know what what do you think like do you think there is sort of the separation between that and the party itself like do you think it's possible to have some sort of remediation do you think that like bernie sanders would have you know done better had he been in charge of the Democratic <laughs> National Convention? Uh, those are sort of the questions that came to my mind first. Yeah, I think the strength of the piece is, like you said, um, to disaggregate the, I guess, our most recent memory, which is the DNC or politicians, whatever, like Schumer and Pelosi kneeling. Um, in, in Kente cloth, in, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or, you know, obviously the corporatization of it over the last few months it's over the winter. To separate that from the early moments, which were much more spontaneous and on the ground and were truly kind of novel and unprecedented, especially what happened first in Minneapolis. Uh, but I do think kind of the strength of the piece or what, what kind of convinced me that, you know, like Toby's smart enough to not kind of fall for for, for um, easy solutions is kind of near the end of the piece where he says like, you know, these things have to be brought together at some point though. We can't just be like purely oppositional and kind of lean into this, you know, kind of anarchistic almost or almost libertarian kind of kind of anti-state um attitude which you know i think if you 
which I think is some people's version of, of what these protests were about. But he says that in the end, there is this kind of weird balance that has to happen between um, the sort of ruthless criticism of the state as like a killing machine or as a prisoner machine, but also the state as a redistributive institution that is actually ultimately the object of demands, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that is. And I, this is actually something I want to talk about, you know, maybe after we kind of go through the piece, like the sort of, I think, the tension that's in, that's in the abolitionist movement with regards to the state and, um, and you know, like what, what, does it, what does it want from the state and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, Tammy, your your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's right. And I, you know, I think Brendan's piece, which we'll discuss later, also kind of echoes this that they're both identifying this kind of separation and figuring out whether in the discourse of redis- sort of redistributive discourse that is implied in abolitionism, there is a meeting point, you know, where we can actually like push for some kind of socialist ideal. I mean, with regards to whether um our beloved Bernie could have done better. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, I mean, I guess we've discussed over the last few weeks that we have been pleasantly surprised by a lot of the stuff that Biden has put forward and that we can count that as a victory of the, the rebellion last year and the different kinds of organizing that gave rise to that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've been, I've been. Is organizing the right word? Do you think? Um, I don't think that organizing is the right word for what happened last, last, uh, you mean, I think some of it, well, I think some of it is spontaneous and I think some of it did rely on existing networks. And I think also post the rebellion, there are different forms of organizing that have remained in place. But I guess if your question is, I mean, it's different from like a labor uprising or something, right? That is like planned and got like goes through existing channels. Like in that sense, I, I know what you're saying, but I, I don't think it's completely like spontaneous and that everyone coming to it was kind of like on their own. I think yeah. it was most. I think it was mostly that. I mean, I you know the re- only reason I ask is because you know I think that there's this tendency, and we you know, and Brendan's piece addresses it a bit. Where everything good that happens on the left is attributed to organizing, you know, and that um, it's almost become this, uh, like, it's it's a word that I think is a stand-in when people don't quite know what's happening and they say, oh, it's because of organizing. Or if they don't have an actual solution, I've done this too, so I'm not free from this, but, you know, when you don't have an actual solution, you just say, we should organize, right? And I don't, I don't know if what happened last summer is attributable to organizing. You know, I think it was spontaneous. I think it was people got really fed up and they were inspired by seeing other things that were happening. And that it wasn't like somebody was going around knocking doors and putting together a Google spreadsheet of people's names and calling them and stuff like that, you know? So I don't know. I I think it's wrong to attribute to organizing. And, you know, I think that's actually an important distinction when we're talking about these two pieces here. Um, Not between them, but it is important to just say, like, look, there's things that are, quote, organizing and things that are not. I'm not sure if last summer was organizing. Well, he ha- he has a line about how it was at a one point called an uprising and then it became a protest. And protest in, you know, in quotation marks is the the kind of thing that spe- the, the specter that kind of hangs over the whole essay is kind of how lame this stuff was in the, you know, like 10 years ago or during the Obama era or not the Obama era, but you know, before that where like a lot of protests were kind of seen as toothless and not actually like breaking through. And he says, you know, the big the the I, I agree that I think the question that hangs over a lot of this essay is like, why was George Floyd's murder 
the one that triggered all this. And he himself kind of offers some theories, you know, why wasn't it this murder? Why wasn't it this incident? But I think that is a question. I don't know if Toby thinks he has an answer to, but that does, that does, I think that question uh, and the sort of uh, our inability to answer that question speaks to the spontaneity and the irrationality uh, of what happened last summer and how you can't really answer why, you know, of all the murders of all the incidents that could have triggered this, right? Why was it this one, right? Cause there's mm-hmm. so many others that are similar to it. And there's so many other right. similar ones afterwards, um, which I think, is something that should, again, should be like leaned into. Like this is, this kind of speaks to the sort of the mystery of how this stuff works and how well, disorganized it was. Yeah, at the beginning, I mean, I'd say. I think at the end, like he says later on, like it does become, and and the, and then there's a tipping point where he is afraid that it does. Be, it goes from like spontaneous to co-opted and institutionalized mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. Sure, but I don't think we. I wouldn't conflate like co-opted with organizing. I mean, and I, you know, I probably have a, I have a different view than Jay, which is that, of course, I think certain things can arise spontaneously. I mean, I think Toby actually comes to a point where in the essay where he talks about it's the confluence with the pandemic that really gives rise to this, which is something I think we've said on the show before is like in our kind of theory arising of it. But, you know, I think even in these things that's, that, you know, probably are spontaneous in large part, like there are, there is still organizing in it. And I don't, I guess I'm not as worried about a fetishization of organizing. Um, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, Jay, and I'm happy to talk about it more. But I think, like, yeah, organizing for, like, structures and for lasting politics is really important. No, I agree that it's important. I just think that um, that some of the ways in which it is given credit for things is overdetermined at this point, you know, um, especially in regards to last summer. I thought about this a lot because, you know, I this is a, now the third big protest that was happening in Minneapolis. The first was Jamar Clark, right, um, where that was an organized response. It was people mm-hmm. going down and sitting in front of a police station in, uh, da- I think it was downtown Minneapolis. Second was Philando Castile, right, which was more spontaneous, tons of people, but was mostly run through sort of existing Black Lives Matter organizing mm-hmm. yeah. people who sort of did the highway shutdowns there. And then there was this, right? And, the, and you know, he writes about this. I want to read from it, um, which is sort of the, uh, what he calls the fulcrum moment of, of the entire summer. He writes, But the destruction of the third precinct, this was striking and truly new. The situation in Minneapolis burst beyond its early outline. On the evening of May 28th, the third night of the rebellion, the police were forced to evacuate their own building, trounced on the very territory they had disciplined and patrolled, broadcasting to the nation their own fear and vulnerability. And then he goes on and says, this event felt like a fulcrum. The whole country seemed, uh, seemed to tilt. Sacked shopping malls in Los Angeles and pillage luxury outlets in Atlanta, a siege on New York, Soho, and flaming vehicles from coast to coast. Now, I've thought about this because, you know, like that moment I agree was sort of like the holy shit moment of the entire <laughs> summer. And maybe like the last like 10 years or something like that. I could not believe what I was watching. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. I thought about it because, you know, I was like, I went and I covered the Philando Castile pro- uh, protest for like two weeks or something like that and met a lot of the organizers. And I was like, I think there are two things that you can say. I think the first is that the size of the response in Minneapolis, which gave cover and which gave rise to this event, right, would probably not have been possible without the two preceding events. And those two preceding events would have been more chaotic and less organized and less effective without organizing going on, 
right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's okay to give that credit there. I don't know if the actual, you know, if organizing is what got it to the point where they're ready to storm a police station. You know, I think that that's something else. I hear you. And that when you give credit to organizing for everything, what you sort of do, and I don't know if it's intentional, I would say it's not intentional, is that you believe that there is some way in which these types of frustrations, this type of rage and anger and this type of righteous anger does not exist without the, um, without the organizing in itself, which it does, right? The people who started all, um, all these, you know, this, this sort of wave now that we've had for seven years in Ferguson were not organized people, you know? Um, the organized people, in fact, came later. The first wave of people who were just people who lived around Ferguson or who lived around the, the Cabrini Green. Not, I'm sorry, not Cabrini Green. Uh, I'm blanking on the name, but the apartment complex where Michael Brown was shot. Cabrini Green obviously is the big place in Chicago that I don't think exists anymore. But um, yeah, hoop dreams. Um, <laughs> but they, uh, I don't know. It, you know, I think yeah. that when you sit, give credit to organizing, you actually sort of discredit some of that people actually just making individual decisions because they've had enough. That's, that's my only point here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it but, seems like, yeah, the story is like, there was a spontaneous moment that gets an organizing is in reaction to it. Um, but like you're saying, like, but these organizers were there ahead of time, but in a sense, like they were kind of catching up to the moment itself uh, last summer. Is that, a, I mean, is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, and I mean, do we like like what? What do you think the role of the organizers right now in the in this movement is? You know, like the biggest names have now been like Deray, who obviously has all sorts of criticisms of him, a lot of which I think are pretty warranted. Um, you know, uh, there's the original three women in Oakland, right? Alicia Garza, Opal Tamani, and. Um, Patrice and Colors. Patrice Colors. And now there's all this controversy with, with one of them owning like four, what seems like four houses or something like that, right? And they're quite, and while the other, um, and sort of, you know, I would say that they exist more in like an academic and, and organization type of space, right? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if the organizers here in these moments are really doing people many favors. I don't know. What do you think about this? I, I don't actually, I don't know if I even mean this. I'm just saying it to be incendiary or to like provoke <laughs> conversation, but like, cause I, I look, I think that I think all, all of them yeah. did good work at some point. I think it's worth testing out those ideas though, because the, after this, the sort of spontaneous startup Black Lives Matter, there was very quickly like a kind of foundation oriented, like infrastructure, nonprofit instru- infrastructure that was built and people inserted themselves very quickly into that. Right. And I think people are still dealing with the ramifications of that at a national level. But I think at a local level, it does seem like different forms of Black Lives Matter activity are occurring, like not Black Lives Matter, like the licensed clubs. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Under the national umbrella or even like, um, you know, Campaign Zero or any of these sort of like Soros and Ford funded projects. But just, um, yeah, I guess just like small groups that, you know, sort of organize themselves and don't necessarily have kind of a national affiliation. Like it does seem to me that different sorts of defund campaigns do still exist. Right. I, the the tension I always feel with that, though, is that like the people who actually went out of their houses who lived in Ferguson like so many of them are dead now, you know, and all of them, you know, they were not really supported by, you know, this sort of foundation building type of stuff that was happening. 
And I think that when you think about the organizing around this moment, that's basically what you're talking about, right? Like, what is there other than that? Um, Outside of, you know, uh, getting out literature or whatever, which is obviously very important, but I don't know. I'm only asking this question because, you know, I'm about to, we're about to talk about organizing a lot. And I, you know, I I do think it's Mm -hmm. important to like sort of, and I I don't know, that's what I found so clarifying about this essay in a lot of ways, which is that, um, it did not try to advance an explanation that I thought was in the was in the service of anything, you know. Right. Maybe socialism. You know? Yeah, it's but, gonna <laughs> robust like, welfare state, but not a party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but not like you know or these are the heroes and these are the villains, right? Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That that's that's sort of. I have a the, yeah. Go ahead. So I don't, this might be a totally different train of thought, but this is something I've been thinking about for a while. But And he, he touches upon it on this essay, uh, which is this question of abolitionism and its relationship to, I think Tammy said earlier, it's implicitly or, or yeah, implicitly an, a, a, a demand for redistribution, right? And halfway through the essay, he says, um, Toby says, vital to abolitionist thought is as, is as a first step of redistributive mission the extraordinary amount of money spent on punishment in the U.S. should instead go to preventive and rehabilitation programs. Um, and it should, uh, more crucial, is an assault on the political consensus that's ripped to the welfare state through ribbons. And I think Toby, just reading through the essay, is very clear in his head that abolition is connected to a critique of you know neoliberalism and demand for like greater state investment. Um, so it's not just take money away from prisons and police, it's to put that money Mm-hmm. into other programs that would actually like not criminalize but actually help the poor for instance yeah i think one question i have is it's not entirely clear to me and it might just be like i'm not you know in the inner circles those who call themselves abolitionists or those who are like following the conversation of abolitionism from the outside if that redistributive part is that clear if that makes sense in the sense that I was, you know, I myself like don't know this stuff very well. And um, so recently like, I read, you know, Ruth Gilmore's book and it made a lot more sense to me when she's framing in terms of there's a historical process that happens in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. with surplus land, capital and people that leads to prisons as a solution. And she herself has said she is not calling for, or in her mind, abolition is not calling for just get rid of the police and let the chips fall where they may, right? She's not just saying get rid of the police point blank. Or, you know, end of, end of period, full stop, whatever. <laughs> and so it's not really a referendum yeah. on whether or not police are good or bad, right? And in a sense, uh, like, obviously they're bad, but it's not just a question of, like, <laughs> let's take away the police and do nothing else, if that makes sense. And it seems to me that there is a discourse emerging where it is just that, where it is just, are police good or bad? And I think opponents of abolitionism would like that to be the conversation because mm-hmm. then it becomes yeah. are police good or bad? They're probably going to win that debate, you know, every time um, in a vacuum, um, especially as we have more, you know, there's all sorts, I mean, it's in the news. It's kind of hard to avoid. There's ma- there's just random mass shootings happening all the time. Right. Um, and yeah. So I just wonder, does abolition do in your mind, do you think abolition is being coded in a way for the listener, the audience to hear about it as a redistributive program, or is, is it getting stuck at this kind of 
short-term debate over whether or not the police are good or bad. Because I fear if that's just the debate, that helps the right, or that helps the opponents of abolition. Because they could be like, well, look, someone's going to come for you and your family. Do you mm-hmm. want the police there or not? Um, anyway, I'm just throwing it out there because yeah. I... You know, no, I, I think that's a good question. Yeah. Tammy, what do you think? I You're the it. most familiar with this literature of the three of us. Oh, I don't know if that's true. I, I guess what I was going to say is that the people, I, I, I feel like I'm learning so much about it and still trying to educate myself. Like last year, I wrote a story about like, um, some, you know, the mayor's suicide in whole. And at the end of that, I talked about certain prescriptions for fixing the way that women feel, like how they feel so unsafe in Korea. And one of my, one of my prescriptions was to have, um, more equity in the carceral system there. And a friend who's an abolitionist public defender, like called me and was like, I was very disturbed by your prescription because it basically <laughs> is like a kind of feminist carceralism. And, you know, yeah. and I had to really, I had to really chew on it. I mean, you know, the, there are various reasons why the analysis of cr- the criminal legal system is slightly different there than here. But, you know, I mean, she had a critique and I think she, I, I guess my point here is just that um, the abolitionists I know who are like really practicing the work, like on a daily basis, I they're so clear on their analysis of the welfare state and redistribution that I don't think I've been exposed to abolitionists who are just like, it's basically deleting the police and leaving everything else. I don't think I've seen that. But I do think you're right that that's how it's being like, very strategically deployed on the right and even on the center left, like yeah. by Democrats, really. Right. Um, like, Dem- like Toby mentions this, and we've talked about this about how like Democrats blame like not getting reelected on like defund, right? Like that right. is just like par excellence, that cynical argument. But I don't, I don't see abolitionists around me losing the thread. Yeah. I don't really think that the people who think seriously about abolition um, or even have entertained it for more than 10 minutes don't understand that second part, which is that, look, you take money from this and it's not like you, uh, you know, it's not like the state keeps it and, you know, builds a new rec center, although that would be part of it, I would imagine, but that there is a redistribution, you know, the money goes somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so here in, you know, not here, but in nearby in Oakland, you know, there's, uh, you know, attempts to, to turn into psychiatric services for people who are having mental breaks, right? Um, I think that's, I think a lot of people do understand that, but Andy, I totally agree with you that I think to the normal voter, yeah. it's just a question of, are more police good or are more police bad? Mm-hmm. Do police stop murders or do they not <laughs> stop murders? And it's very hard to convince people that police don't stop murders, especially right now when there is like a huge murder spike in a lot of cities. You know, mm-hmm. um, in Oakland, for example, right now, it's horrible. You know, a mm. lot of murders. Th- I think three times as many as there were in normal years. And, uh, you know, people get scared and, you know, it's very hard to convince people like, oh, well, we should just not have cops there. You know, these people are only shooting each other, these people being, you know, obvious what the implication is, because the cops are there, you know, (laughs) which is the type of perverted argument of abolition that I think that some, you know, young people might say, or some people who are not as familiar with it would say, but I don't think any serious abolitionist would say that, like, there's no zero correlation between any of these things, right? Um, I think that they would essentially say, look, like, there are better ways to solve the underlying problems here um, than just militarizing these 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 neighborhoods um but yeah i agree i think that right now we're in this place where that message has been so 
perverted. And the reason why that's happened is because it's a difficult argument. You know, I think we've said this before. It's a hard argument to sell people on. And it is an it is actually in itself, as Toby mentions in the piece, it is a revolutionary argument. Yeah. Right. It is not an incremental argument. It's not really just like, well, what if we took like twenty percent of this city's police budget and gave it to social workers, right? Like that's not the scope of of that's abolition. Right. Yeah. Um well, and remember when we had Tommy Craig's on and he said he called like abolitionism potentially like the ideology of our time. I think what he was talking about in, in saying that is that it is a kind of totalizing mental infrastructure that is like super, it's so hard. Like it is world making and it is like when Gilmore says it's everything. It is literally, it is totally reimagining our kind of world. And this, right. so it's so, it's so challenging and it's actually a very bad tag like a bad phrase in that sense, like, you know, in that it can't contain that entire trajectory. Yeah. I think, I think, I think there is a risk of, you know, I don't want to be like totally bad faith about this, but I do think there is a risk that it gets read disconnected from that broader program as just, and, and I, you know, I, I understand the critique of like carceral logic and carcerality and all that stuff. Uh, but I do also kind of wonder if it goes too far in the direction where it's about like our attitudes and our ideas, like, it is, but it's also really about like institutions, and it's about putting money in. It's about material institutions, and it, I don't. It's like I think most people don't have to be like converted to car- to like stop the carceral thinking in their minds. They just need to live in a society and see how it works better. Um, if money is put from one to another, and I think you know, I, I will just say like I don't. I'm not in these circles. I just kind of see what's on Twitter, right? And I don't see as much emphasis as I think I expected. Uh, when this stuff began last summer about like what, what should the money be used for instead. Right. Well, the, the mm. conversation on Twitter seems to be in a lot of ways like, uh, you know, sort of gotcha moments, right? Like they yeah. say, this police officer who you see in this video makes $114,000 a year. We should defund the police. And I'm like, <laughs> that's, all, I mean, look, $114,000 is a lot of money, you know, uh, and that police officer is being paid and being paid over time and everything like that. But I don't know if that's a convincing argument to anyone who hasn't already converted. It's like, who fucking cares how much yeah. the cop makes? You know, I don't want people murdered like down the street from me. Yeah. Um, like, I don't, I'm not quite sure. You know, I, I think that that's an effect of Twitter, though. And like, yeah. Twitter is sort of like, do you remember, out there. What was the incident like a month ago? Like, Micaiah Bryant was her name, right? The woman right. who was shot. And there were people on Twitter saying things like, like, like I don't want this to be read as like a pro cop thing, but like, the response was like, when people have knives, like no one, like the state should not intervene. Uh, and then it becomes really like this really weird debate about whether or not it's okay to let people attack each other or not, which does not seem to be like the argument that abolitionism should be headed towards, right? Mm. Like it should be about like, well, what are the conditions that gave rise to this in the first place? And so, like a sort of a more long term conversation. But if it's about, just get rid of the state on the streets and then let kind of the chips fall. I mean, it was kind of going in that direction of get rid of the police and let just pe- let people sort it out themselves, which, you know, it might convince some of us, but I don't think that is like that convincing. Um, well, right. Argument, right. Well, and the other argu- the question to be had is like, is abolition really a suasion question? You know, is it something that, that you just have to gently, uh, persuade everybody who's, who's, who's skeptical about it to do it? Or is it something that can be brought to the forefront by doing things like burning down the police precinct, right? Because I think that 
in terms of scaring people into like even considering some of these ideas, that action certainly had much more effect than nine billion <laughs> tweets put together sure. could ever have, right? So um, I think that that's sort of one of the things to think about here. And you know, there's this passage that I wanted to read here, and you know, I think this is sort of the core of it, which is that. Uh, he writes that radical passion has been gutted, blunted, deflected, suppressed, and frozen into rhetoric, peddled as commodity in the face of establishment cynicism and the promise of, quote, representation. It can be hard to voice real outrage in the ache of collective grief, right? And like he's referring here to a lot of what is happening afterwards and, you know, sort of what I think people would call the co-option of it. And I found it interesting because, like, I think that he's right here, you know? And I wonder if, and I, I think about it sort of in two polls. On, on the one hand, we have a bunch of people who are saying that we need to win elections, right? And sort of saying slogans like defund the police are really uh, unpopular. We should stop talking about it. We should stop talking about things in terms of race first, right? Did you, you know, that study that's been sort of cited everywhere <laughs> at this point. Um, because it's unpopular and we should talk about things in terms of helping poor people. I agree with that, you know, generally. And yet I don't know if framing everything through winning little margins on electoral politics that we're not entirely clear upon <laughs> is really is yeah. really <laughs> worth the sacrifice of what the reality that Toby outlines in this quote is. And I think that's yeah. actually sort of the question that Brendan is also grappling mm -hmm. with, right? Like uh, it's the question that the people on the dig in that ultras argument question episode we're grappling with, which is like, is there a cost to these types of radical utterances, right? And should we do them? Um, and I don't know. I think that's sort of the central question that we're at right now um, on quote the left, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Podcast I don't, yeah. the, Well, I mean, I think generally too, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I don't know. DSA has like 90,000 people in it, right? Like most of those people probably listen to some podcast or another. And so <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the two are so far separated. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wait, so what, wait, what is the central question? Well, the central question is like, you know, which, which, which avenue do you choose? Are they mutually exclusive, right? Is it mutually exclusive to basically say like, we need to win every seat so that the Congress doesn't go to the Republicans in 2020? Two and they don't confirm the Democratic nomination, you know, the Democratic winner in 2024. Is that, is that super important? Should we do everything in our power to change our messaging and to blunt the rough edges around what we're doing so that we can appeal to like some, you know, white, uh, white family in, you know, Fulton County, Georgia or something like that, right? Like, um, you know, or, or do we just say that we're mad? <laughs> You know, do yeah. we not care? Do we burn down mm -hmm. the precinct? Right? Like, those are the two questions. I imagine those are the two questions forever, but they seem right. to be extreme <laughs> right now, right? Like, they're really sort of put in front of us at this point. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Are those the two choices that people are facing right now? Well, what is your guys' analysis of why we have had so many DSA candidates win? Because we have. Yeah. Right. Right. That's so, the counter argument to yeah, it. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'm, you know, and it's something I think about all the time. Like, you know, I mean, DSA and it's it has all kinds of problems, obviously. And like, you know, we can debate what it even is because I was just saying to a friend, like, I feel like it depends on like the date, time and place of like where, right. you know, like what what you see, like which particular corner of DSA you see, like what your analysis of it will be. But they are winning electoral politics and potentially fueling yeah. the precinct burning. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, my takeaway from I don't know if you want to like transition, you know, to Brendan's piece. My takeaway from Brendan's piece, but probably also for Toby's, is that a lot of those questions, you know, that Jay is just raising and you were just talking about, is like um, really kind of aligning the difference between local and national. Right. Like Brendan's piece is a lot about like celebrities and the fanification of politics, which is mm. obviously true at the national level. But I think the starting with the primaries and into like the sort of surprising victories at the state level in the national election, um, you know, last year and also just the sort of spontaneous uprisings last year, mm-hmm. we saw that like local organizing does make a lot of difference. And that is where a lot of the surprises come from. Right. It's not all 50 states all at once. It's this state. In, and this, perhaps this chunk of the state in particular has surprisingly swung um, and, and, organi- and local organizing there matters in a way that, you know, like the sort of what's the national message on YouTube kind of debates like don't really don't really hit. Right. And, and um, I don't know, I kind of might kind of take away a lot from our conversations of last year was like, if you're going to put your energy into something, just put into like local stuff first and hopefully it'll build up or upwards from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like my impression is that like DSA is radically different, you know, from chapter to chapter and, you know, some are active and some are, some, some make a difference and others, you know, they will in the future. <laughs> oh, weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, and it's like yeah. AOC, like she is a local candidate, you know, but now right. she's a national celebrity right. and like what her meaning is on a street in like her district in the Bronx versus like in Jackson Heights versus, right. Versus like some guy watching it from like Colorado is very different. Um, but yeah, there was also a good piece in the nation by Sam Adler Bell kind of, you know, in a book, in a review of the new AOC book, kind of like about like, what is the cost of having like a major socialist celebrity like AOC? You know, Mm. what do we do with that? And I think, I don't know, these are really hard questions. I mean, Jay's, the the either or that Jay posed is like our eternal either or for people who want social change. And in some ways we just have to do everything. (laughs) But, you know, I, I think it's really, really challenging. Like I, I think it's also kind of like what your personal, conviction and ability is like for me i just get way more passionate about the labor stuff and the precinct burning stuff and less passionate about electoral politics but i will still do like an odd phone bank or canvas yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know <laughs> i think that, i think the dilemma just to put a finer point on it i think the dilemma is basically like yes there is a way that these two are not mutually exclusive and yeah, everybody totally. can figure it out and the way is that you throw yourself into local politics you keep do, going to protests, you keep going, you know, you, you don't Do run best. away when the protest gets hairy. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, like you fight the police, you, mm-hmm. you know, you call the police for what they are. And yet, you know, and then you ignore all sort of the electioneering stuff, right? Um, which, uh, you know, I think that, um, uh, or you, but to do that, you have to really believe that the electioneering stuff is wrong. And I think the place where I'm at right now is that, like, I want to believe it's wrong, you know? Like, I know. I, I yeah, want to believe that, like, uh, you know, that that uh, sort of really arguing against police stuff is not necessarily going to doom you to electoral fa- failure. Mm-hmm. But I don't actually But you're believe, worried. I don't yeah. actually believe that. Okay. <laughs> like, I want to believe it, but I don't actually believe it. And I think that, like, there's so much evidence of this, especially right now in New York City, where, like, the two front runners are, like, the guy who's, like, who yesterday, Andrew Yang, said, my number one priority is to make New York safe. You know, has never <laughs> breathed a word about the police at all, except in sort of glowing ways. 
And the other guy, Eric Adams, is a former cop who used to be a Republican. <laughs> you know, like those are that's one yeah. and two. You're gonna yeah. get one of those two, you yeah. know? And that like the more progressive type of candidates like Catherine Garcia or uh, Maya Wiley, they're like nowhere close, you know, to like it seems like their entire uh, Diane Morales, the main right, one. Diane Morales, like, right? Like, uh, like everyone who's voting for them is like on Twitter and has at least a thousand followers. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. um, like, you know, and it's not like Andrew Yang and and Eric Adams are just going after like sort of the wealthy elite. They're not. In fact, their their candidacy yeah. is the opposite. Like, they both are going after sort of outer borough minority mm-hmm. communities, and yeah. so. The idea that, like, you know, like, all we have to do is persuade the readers of the New York Times, right? Like, no, you know, like, 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 you're the people that you're up against are not just white, rich people, right? Like, (laughs) at all, in any way. No, for sure. And so that's what complicates it for me. And that's where I do think they are sort of mutually exclusive, right? Like, that's the point where I can't really quite get behind, like, we can do both, right? Like, we, um, we can try to do both. But we should at least understand that the risks are there. But well, okay. So I think it's important to remember that I think this is true. When the precinct was burned last summer, there was actually quite universal support for it, right? Well, yeah. Toby cites this Newsweek poll. I think that was like fifty-four percent of people thought it was justified. Yeah, which is um, crazy, right? So I think right. I think the beginning of or you know, the beginning of last summer and what the article is pointing at, there was this sort of unformed raw material. Right. That, 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 and then the question is like, what do we do with it? How is it formed afterwards? And how does history change afterwards? And I think, uh, you know, I, there was an article recently in 530 that was like polling for this stuff has actually like, like for like abolition and uh, BLM like peaked last summer and has kind of steadily declined since then, which isn't like right. a reason to like hang our heads or anything, but just to kind of like see like, well, this is where we are. And this is, you know, yeah. like this is, this is the crossroads that things are at. But I guess the question I guess my question for you all is then if you were to kind of take this like forget election, forget policy kind of attitude, then like what are the concrete goals towards which you could work and galvanize people towards if it's not an election or if it's not a policy change? Well, I think that the argument that is being made in this essay in some ways, right, is that these events do change policy. You know, they, they do, they do lead to sweeping changes. Uh, they're never credited with it for obvious reasons because people would rather talk about, you know, voters, specific voters, individual voters, and what their preferences are and, you know, the politics of the people they elect, many of whom will never do a single thing to help the people who actually are out there on the streets, right? Um, I don't know. I think that, that that would be the argument, you know? You burn down a police precinct and suddenly every corporation in America is scared of you and then that that influences the politicians that you know that they that they have sort of in their pocket, but it also gives rise to new people who are elected like Cory Bush or Jamal Bowman, right? Yeah. Who especially Cory Bush, where Cory Bush is, you know, basically labeled herself as Ferguson protester. Totally. You know, she's like, that's yeah. who I am. Um, and that those are meaningful. And that that actually is a more effective way to confront the state head on than to do it through, um, you know, trying to get the right person elected, Uh, especially after the right person, you know, I don't know, didn't win last time. And that's not that's not fault of anybody in the campaign or himself, but Mm -hmm. it just sort of shows what they're up against. Right. Bush didn't win. 
and then she did win, right? So, and 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 yeah. you know, in that example, it still ends with like Bush getting into office, not, not right. Cory right. Bush, not not the other Bush. But yeah, I was confused for a second. <laughs> I was like, wait, he won twice. First of all, I don't know George Bush. I don't know W. Did W. ever lose an election? Probably not, yeah, right? Undefeated, like, retired. Maybe maybe like <laughs> captain of the Yale stickball team or something like that. They're like, I'm sorry, W. Although I imagine he was probably pretty good at stickball too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that that's the detail I always re- remember with uh, W. Um, I mean, outside of you know the wars and stuff, and but it's just <laughs> like basically he played. He started like a stickball club. Oh my at god, Yale. that is too much. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I yeah. Mean- but I think we have to also see that, like, there's no reason why Cor- a Cory Bush shouldn't exist as, like, the mayor of New York. And, like, each, I mean, it's very depressing to me that in my city, like, these two disgusting cops are at the head of the polls. <laughs> but, you know, I think also, like... I'm sorry, could you, could you say disgusting POC cops? <laughs> yes, these disgusting brown and black cops <laughs> are at the head of the polls. I, You know, but I think, like, how we present, like, abolitionism is, like, it's... I think it's there's like the rhetoric around it and like that word as like a phrase is one thing. But, you know, when you're like at a doorstep trying to talk to somebody in like public housing about like what is their issue and like why are they supporting Andrew Yang? Like, you know, you can have a conversation that where you try to steer them up and it's not just like, oh, yeah, I see that there's a rising crime rate and this guy's like pro cop propaganda yeah. is like speaking to me. It's like, OK, but you're also hungry. Yeah. And like you're about to get evicted like there, you know, and I th- think it's, so it's really like an organizing challenge. I keep like fetishizing organizing, but it's really a challenge of like, w- like it's up to us also to like translate abolitionism into a discourse that actually means something and isn't yeah. just going to be able to be picked apart by these like right wing right. cops. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a race in Philly that might interest people. Kras- Larry Krasner, right. Was elected a few years mm-hmm. ago as this very progressive DA who kind of decriminalized a lot of things. And I think, um, there's been a big, huge pushback. And, uh, you know, I think he's right. escalated to Chase, win. A, Chase in San Francisco, too. Same, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chase is, the, the recall movement is, like, huge around was he Was he voted Same. in as a sort of progressive alternative, like left of the Democratic oh, yeah, Party? Oh, yeah, for sure. Big was. time. Yeah. He's the Krasner of that area. Yeah, okay. I mean, he, in a way, he was a bigger star than Krasner because, uh, you know, his parents were... His parents. Yeah, his parents were, uh, they were weathermen, right? Is that right? Oh, right. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I think, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in those races in the sense that you are going to have, I think the, the, they're gonna, oh. the other side is pushing the argument, right, that if you just decriminalize without all the other stuff, right, then that just puts everyone in more danger. I, I think that both of them are toast. I, I think <laughs> Do that you? The, oh yeah. I, I mean, think Chase that, I mean, seems for I think sure. Krasner, Krasner, I, I, I think he could like lose a lot of momentum but still hang on, but you know, we'll maybe, see. Maybe, maybe. But I mean I I think that the that you know, the realistic diagn- uh, sort of analysis or diagnosis of what happened to those two big name guys in big name cities mm-hmm. um pushing this type of super progressive uh, reform is that like people did not you know the people in those cities are pretty fed up with it you yeah. know and that that uh, it was a great experiment and you know, it's gonna be a while before someone like that is elected know, right? in a big city again because I mean good Damn. like I don't know I, mean, I think it was a lot of bad luck in a lot of ways because I was of the pandemic say, yeah I don't think it's their fault I don't think it yeah. invalidates the basic premises in any sort of way. In fact, I think it's a huge victory in itself that they won. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't know. I don't think we have to put a positive spin on everything. Like, you know, like it's, it's, 
it 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 just it just leads to such easy talking points for the right. Mm-hmm. Every time anyone is out on bail for anything and does something bad, which does happen, right? Yeah, it's all over the news here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, all the hate and crimes. The Asians are angry about. Oh it, yeah, right? all yeah. the hate crime stuff is blamed yeah. on Chesa. Mm-hmm. There's this reporter, Dion Lim. Is a TV reporter, and she she just goes at she, like it is like oh, a, really? for her is yeah she, it like, is like keeping a, track of all the anti Asian hate crimes is that yeah a, yeah yeah she's, she's yeah. like the Stefan Kim of I was gonna uh, say yeah, yeah. <laughs> she she's, she is she <laughs> she had this tweet well, I I never responded to her but she had this tweet that I read it I was like are you out of your mind you know and it was about some woman who had clearly been robbed, you know, and it's mm-hmm. terrible that an old woman is robbed, an old Asian lady is robbed, but mm-hmm. this is a robbery, right? It is not like a random attack in the ways in the ways that other ones that we've seen are. Uh-huh. And she was like, this happened like close by uh, Chesa Budin's house, you know, <laughs> and like, what does he think about this type of stuff going on in his neighborhood? And then I, it, it was not that close. It was like it was a tiny city, you know, so it's like basically you go five blocks and you're in another neighborhood. But I was just like, man, she fucking hates him. And she's she's always, yeah, she always sort of like looks him in the eye and she's like, she's like, why aren't you answering my questions? And there was this one press conference she did where she was asking Chase a question. She's like, why are you not looking at me me in the eye? Why are you looking away? And I was like, oh my God, she is roasting him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Um, It it sort of brought back my time as a television reporter because, you know, you're supposed to do that. And it's actually quite fun to do that. You know, like you just sort of go doorstop people. Doorstop, not meaning like some violent act, but, you know, you show up at their doorstep. And um, (laughs) (laughs) so stressful and it's terrible. Such a, oh man, it's great. It's like a big <laughs> thrill. If someone starts screaming at you, you know, um, at, in that type of moment, then, you know, like you sort of won. Like that's what TV news is incentivized <laughs> by as part of the reason why I didn't necessarily like being Broadcast on TV gold. news. But I would say that like, I kind of get where she's coming from all of this. And I find her politics to be somewhat abhorrent and clearly oh carceral. And yet at the same time, like she just owns him, you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, she she is reflecting a lot of how, you know, like basically the entire hate crime stuff in this area, which is obviously still the center of it. You know, those two women got stabbed on Market Street in San yeah. Francisco the other day. I saw that. Um, it's all been thrown on Chase's door. And London yeah. Breed is, you know, the mayor of San Francisco mm-hmm. who has, you know, Bloomberg backed, like uh, probably maybe will be a president president of the United States one day. Um, oh my she's God. very, very <laughs> smart. She's just been like, you know, dust her hands, happy to throw it on Chase's door, (laughs) just throws him under the bus. And so that's what I mean. You know, it's hard to have those people um, and those politics be at the center of horrific crimes. Yeah. Because everyone is mad. Everyone is looking for someone to blame. And the second they're like, you could have had him in jail and he wouldn't have done this. And yet he's out. So, you know. Uh, how do you answer? How do you respond to that? Well, you give some squishy answer about you know. Well, here's some charts showing you the recidivism. <laughs> it's like doesn't work, right? You know? So, yeah. um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that stuff is just like the futility of doing this, um, trying to win these arguments within the battlefield of like the existing political arena. And I think what Toby's article in particular is pointing towards is. He's kind of trying to carve out a, a, a dis- I mean, he's kind of like trying to boom like these older politicians by saying, 
this is my generation. This is our generation. We're newer. We're younger. He talks about this, uh, you know, the CBC and Obama is basically, he's basically like kind of roasting him himself, right? Saying like right. they were out of touch and, you know, Ob- the Obama era looks worse and worse kind of with every, mm-hmm. with every passing moment. And, um, you know, kind of carving a case for his generation or, you know, maybe up to our generation and below of seeing the world differently. And maybe that this looking back on, he's kind of writing the history of last year as the turning point of a, uh, uh, kind of think about how how will last year be written in history in the future as, as right, a turning right. point, right? And, it's a framing, um, right. and I think it's the right framing. Can I like you know just around this question of like radical politics and what happens to it, right? Like I feel like just a local story here, which I thought I think is somewhat illustrative. I think I might have talked about it on the show before. If I have, I apologize, but like. Uh, you know, like there's a huge, the only question in the city of Berkeley ever that matters politically is uh, outside of fire safety stuff now is uh, housing, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there's been a great effort to end single family zoning in the city of Berkeley. Now, the, uh, and that is framed always as a question of racial, po- you know, like racism right. and racism in the past specifically, right? Like these used to be redlined areas. Um, the thing is that there's not that much single-family zoning in the city of Berkeley. Like most of it is exists up in the hills where people aren't going to build eight plexes, right? Because uh, I don't know if you've been to Berkeley, but you can't really get up to the hills, right? Like you, and there's not enough parking. If you build an eight plex and you block off roads, which then gets to the actual thing that people care about, which is fire safety. Like if you can't drive out of the hills, you're just going to burn. Like that's the type of stuff that people care about. But the interesting thing to me is that. This thing is sort of being hailed as this huge political victory and a very progressive political victory. And I agree that there are some ways in which it is. But, you know, the only the person who opposed it on the city council before was like a former Panther um, who uh, represented West Berkeley. And West Berkeley is the traditionally black part of Berkeley. Now, I say traditionally because Berkeley has lost large, large portions of its black population in the last 20 years. And the reason why she opposed it is the same reason that Carol Fife opposes Yimbies, right? Which is that essentially you're just going to build a bunch of luxury housing. You're going to say you're going to put in affordable units. You're not, you know, Um, all that's going to be negotiated and that we won't be able to negotiate it democratically. It's going to be negotiated between like elected city council officials and the mayor and whatever. And the developers always win like these arguments, right? And that, Mm -hmm. that basically you're not going to build these new luxury condos in the hills. You're not going to build them in Elmwood or Rock Ridge, which are the wealthy parts of the flats where you could build these things. But obviously the real estate is too expensive and the people around there have strong neighborhood uh, influences and they're not going to allow that type of stuff in their neighborhoods, right? So um, I don't know. I think about it in terms of like basically everyone has gotten around this totally unradical uh, movement and have or idea and have labeled it as radical. Now, the question of whether or not Berkeley, which definitely needs more housing, has any other alternative uh, that's realistic, is is a separate question. And I tend to somewhat sympathize with the Yimbies on that. Right? Like, there's not much else that we can do. But the reason why I think that is because the actual uh, public housing question has been completely taken off the table. I was going to say, <laughs> right, right. You can't so. <laughs> have inclusionary zoning without a public housing plan. Right. So, like, that's yeah. what I mean. There's no public housing conversation. It's literally just about building eight plexes, right? <laughs> like, what the fuck is an eight plex? <laughs> you know? like, I don't even know what that is. Man, so, like, so. Um, 
And like, you know, like, I I don't know, like that is, is that the future of democratic politics where it has the veneer of like anti-racism and the veneer Mm. of like, sort of like, we are doing this unprecedented thing. But in the end, what it has done is taken away the actual radical, quote unquote, like, I don't know, understand why uh, public housing is radical, but it is now, which actually gives a sense of where we are. Yeah. But very (laughs) radical. Right, right, right. And so if fucking Berkeley, California has completely taken um, public housing, you know, and the option for public housing off, like, what hope does anyone else have? And I think that that's the type of place where it's like, we do need to be able to say these radical options, you know, even if they're unpopular. We can't allow for these types of sort of, I I hate this word, but, you know, that's what it is, like these sorts of neoliberal uh, solutions to become the radical option that people can feel comfortable about. Like Berkeley is having this, my kid is going to start elementary school in a year and a half. And so um, it's interesting because all the schools are being renamed and all the schools are already named after civil rights heroes. And like Berkeley, at some point, <laughs> I make this joke at soccer practice, it doesn't go over very well, but you know, and I'm just like, Berkeley at some point is going to have more, more elementary schools named after black people than black people, black people in the city. <laughs> Berkeley. No, I'm serious. <laughs> and the other soccer dads are like. <laughs> yeah, it didn't go over very well. Yeah, looking down, that, you know, trying not yeah. to make eye contact with Jay. They're like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> oh, but no. uh, I mean, it's not, you know, it's, I, I think part of their discomfort is that it's not funny. You know, but like whatever, yeah, I have yeah. like a terrible sense of humor. But yeah. like, um, it's pretty funny. It's true, you it's know. Tragic, so yeah. that's where uh, <laughs> that's sort of what I was thinking in terms of this, which is just like, you know, Carol Five is already undergoing a lot of resistance. Yeah. Um, just after she's being blamed for everything in like that. this crazy way, you know. Yeah. Um, and it is. We're in this really difficult position where I think that basically anything, anytime the Democrats lose an election, everybody like points to like the usually mm-hmm. not white person That's right. and says it's your fault, mm-hmm. you know? And so while Blame I believe the brown or black leftist. <laughs> right, right. And while I believe that like basically, you know, like the, uh, the sort of like wonks who say this is what's going to happen, I think they're right. And yet, like, I don't know, the sort of cost of, going down that road to me is too high, you know? And so... Right, who's saying, what's going to happen? Like, you know, if you defund the police, it's unpopular. Yeah, like, uh, if you talk about race too much, you're going to lose, you know? Um, I kind of, I think that they're right, you know? But at some point you have to say, like, well, okay, I don't care, and I'm going to make this choice. I don't know, what do you think? I mean, I think, you know, I think Toby's kind of also trying to walk this fine line between saying... Black issues are everyone's issues, but also that black issues are like the vanguard of all these other issues. Yeah, I was right. interested in that too. And, uh, you know, I think you know, it can obviously be spun in a way that should appeal to everyone. I think, mm-hmm. you know, the, the general spirit of the essay is a socialist universalist vision. But, internationalist as well. Right, because right. he goes into NSARS, which was right, great. Right, right. So, I mean, the end of the essay is a note to the sort of internationalism where... Yeah, I was with, very glad to see that. Yeah. At like, uh, you know, protests that he was in for Oscar Grant, I believe. Maybe not Oscar Grant, but, you know, before mm-hmm. Michael Brown was even shot. He ends with, uh, you know, um, the people are chanting that he's with. He's saying, they're saying, um, you know, Oakland, Gaza, Greece, fuck the police. 
you know, and this is a point before anyone had heard of the city of Ferguson before. Right. Right. Um, right. <clears throat> I've seen some of that, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Andy. I mean, I think he's, I think you pointed, you point out a good tension that he's trying to resolve or bring up and, you know, let us resolve, which is this question of like, what does black liberation mean to everybody, you know, and what are the universalist programs that we can draw out from a movement that is centered on a particular population for the most part and is led by a particular population, you know, and I, I think, I mean, one thing he, he says, which I think we've, we've said at ad nauseum on the show is that like, we cannot have the result of the Floyd rebellion be Robin D'Angelo, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> just right, like, yeah. like there needs to be, we need to be able to translate this to something that isn't just this kind of, you know, yeah. corporate yeah, nod. Right. Yeah. And, and yet at the same time, like acknowledging these tensions that Jay's bringing up, where like in an election, like, I mean, that, that supports it in a way, which is that like in an election, you can't just use these like, talking points that you learned in your like anti-racism seminar at your faculty meeting, you know, to like try to win, win something like you need to actually have some substance behind it. On the other hand, I do. And this might be a transition to Brendan's piece is that the people who buy Robin D'Angelo, you still got to get them to vote or whatever to, to like be on board with, because they're the majority of the country, right? There's more Robin D'Angelo consumers than there are people in the streets, I think. Right. Right. I think that the response from the sort of wonks would be those people also support what Joe Biden is doing. You know, yeah. uh, you know, if Joe Biden had done federal $15 minimum wage or something, I'm sure the Robin D'Angelo people would have supported that. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of well It's like a demographic lo- category now. <laughs> can I can I also say can I also say that I am extremely skeptical that there are a lot of Robin D'Angelo people. Right. That's what I was like gonna say. Yeah. But like, right? yeah. yeah, I yeah. guess I feel like there's like the sliver of Robin D'Angelo people. There's a sliver of people on the street, and then there's a lot of nor- just regular people right. who actually yeah. didn't come out last summer. Yeah. But like they have feelings about what's going on. A lot of people would right. talk and cheer out their windows, but not actually do it, you know? Right. I think the Robin D'Angelo thing is kind of overstated in a lot of ways. I do think that the stuff that happens in Berkeley is what happens and that that's what we should, you know, I mean, not that it's Berkeley like New York, should be Berkeley, a but like, barometer for anything. Yeah. But like this sort of like, hey, let's uh, let's just clothe this in the in anti-racism and take the radical option off the table yeah. and or uh, radical, you know, let's take the actual the public uh, option, the actual solution off the table and let's just sort of, you know, congratulate ourselves for being anti-racist and righting these wrongs. Like, I think that's true. I don't know if, like, the whole white fragility, specifically Robin D'Angelo thing, is, like, that common. And um, I don't know. I know many people who bought and read that book, and I don't know anyone who, like, you know, thinks about it at all. And, you know, most of my friends are normies, as I point out all the time yeah. on the show. I think there's a lot of read it because you made it. So. <laughs> I think there's a lot of Ibram X candy readers as well. Well, I know my best. Well, I was going to say my best friend growing up who lives like you know a few miles from me now, and you know I've known him since we were like ten years old or something like that. Um, He's a he works in tech and he is completely apolitical. And he is like he bought Ibram X candy's book last summer and he read and he's like it had some interesting points. You know, (laughs) (laughs) why did he read it? Because he felt compelled he to, just, like, you know? That was his reaction to that. Well, he sympathized with what was happening, <laughs> yeah. and he went to a couple of protests with me, okay. and, like, it's yeah. not like he... Um, he is not somebody who doesn't care about these things, but, you know, he's not going to think about it uh, too long and too hard, or, you know, like, he's not going to, like, read, like, uh, you know, 
I don't know, he's not a go read like CLR James or something like that, you know? Yeah. And so the access point to that is that, and you just say, oh, yeah, that's interesting, yeah. you know? I don't know. I think a lot of people have that response. I think you can do a couple protests, though. That's cool. Right, right. I don't think there's like an indoctrination or something like that that's happening, you know? Like, that <laughs> right. feels like, like the type of thing that like the fear mongers about wokeism would argue, you know? Yeah. Just like, right, I don't right, know. right. Like, people had to buy that shit for work, yeah. you know? It's not that hard to make the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> the Facebook reading club. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. If like, you know, if like, uh, if Amazon or like Boeing says everyone has to buy this book, then you've made the fucking bestseller list, right? Like, so. Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, like the left overthinks these things too much because polls show like they are, all their issues are really popular, really mainstream right. and popular. And, um, it's, you know, the reason that the politicians don't support them are other reasons, but it's not because they're not, resp- it's not because they're not popular. I mean, like high wages, that's popular unions. These are all popular things. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, so I, I think that the, the last thing I'll ask both of you is just that, um, I mean, I think that there, I could sense in, and I, I don't mean this, I think that like there this comes out of a this essay comes out of a place of frustration in some ways, right? Like let's not forget. You know, let's not mm-hmm. move Andy, stop clicking. Like let's not forget. <laughs> let's uh let's keep this you know, I, I don't think it's like a let's keep this energy going type of thing, but like let's remember what happened and yeah. let's actually accurately assess what, what happened because of it and what the people's motivations were. Do you think that it's possible for these types of moments to be demystified in that sort of way for like the majority, you know, for time. Cause you know, like he points out what Martin Luther King was actually talking about at the end of the, of his life. Right. Um, there is a machine in America that takes these moments and turns them into movies. Right. Um, turns them into this sort of like utopian nonviolent vision, which he also outlines in the piece. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, is that machine so powerful at this point that every action is going to be sort of converted into that type of, in that type of stuff? I don't know. That's a mm. question. That's a thought that I had. I think a lot about at what point the civil rights movement became instantiated as the civil rights movement in right. our history. And same with the women's movement, which, you know, that didn't go as well in some ways, but, you know, and I wonder about, I think, you know, I think Toby and, and we are engaged in a project of rearticulating a narrative of like 2008, Occupy, you know, coronavirus, Floyd, you know, I, I should have put Black Lives Matter 2014 in there, but trying to figure out if we're in kind of like a reaction to neoliberalism moment or something like what is this going to be in 10 years? But yeah, I think that thread is really as we're moving through this and as we don't yet have the ending of this story, the the, the risk of erasure is very high. And um, I think it demands a rehearsal, like a very self-conscious rehearsal right. in which we are actually trying to convince ourselves that we are still in a thing that is leading somewhere. Yes, I, that, that's a wonderfully. Like we're still, we have to remind ourselves yeah. we're still in a thing. Because like, I think the internet makes actually the process for getting faster. Yes. It's been amazing oh how quickly everyone's just forgotten about Trump. And every once in a while, you'll be like, people will be like, the GOP has not forgotten Trump. And I'd be like, yes, that's probably true. 
however everyone else has you know <laughs> like i think about like you know like i think about like sabald you know like just writing these books mm. about walking around the countryside and seeing like sort of like buildings sticking up out of the grass or something like that and essentially arguing look history is still here whether or not yeah. we engage in this process of forgetting or not and now it just seems like because of online it's instant you know it's yeah. like it, and in some ways, because none of us are local anymore, because we take in all of the world's mm-hmm. news, we sort of actually don't remember things. You know, even though this was a national <laughs> movement, that anyone who was living in an American city, as small as fucking Iowa City, Iowa, or you know, like yeah. wherever, Rural areas um, and, yeah. has physical memories of this. What, whatever side you're on, you either saw some place, you know, you either saw a protest walk down your street, you either participated in one, you got tear gassed by mm-hmm. the cops. Or you, someone you know got tear gassed by the cops, or someone you know is a cop. You know, like so, like mm. it's amazing how quickly it's it's sort of memory hold now, right? And I don't know that that part actually scares the shit out of me. Not just for this, but for everything. It's just like we actually can't remember things <laughs> anymore yeah. collectively as a country. Um, you know, yeah. Andy, what do you think? What do you make of that as a historian? Because we have the most resources now to remember things. Yeah. We have the most archives. So is it archive overload that causes that? Like, how do you read that? Um, yeah, I have no idea how people writing about today is going to make sense of all of this because there's so much out there. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I agree that we're still in the process of going through whatever we're going to go through. I think part of what Toby was doing at the end of the essay by referring back to 2012 is to say that in 2028, you know, Mm -hmm. in 2028, we're still going to see the the fallout from last summer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to get to this question about, you know, is there this this machine that's going to co-opt it? I kind of take the stance of, you know, as like a a perhaps determinist. I kind of think like culture follows, you know, after the fact. And I think, you know, there are people in the present because we live in a neoliberal culture that are going to try to, defaying it for all it's worth. But if there is actually a transformation away from neoliberalism back towards thinking about class and big state projects and so on, that there might be in 10 or 20 years uh, people telling the same story in a different mode that is, you know, kind of unimaginable today, like not just Hollywood mm-hmm. heroes, not just, you know, yeah. individuals and so on and so forth. But I mean, you, don't, present, you don't think it'll be like the Lincoln movie thing though, where it's like, one man, right? Like, you know, Joe Biden sat in his basement with his oh, right, no. with his with his misbehaving dog, and he called his son up on the phone. He's like, "Son, I think I got to run as a bit. You know, I think we got to do." Did big you watch I- Lincoln? Oh my no, god! No. The answer to any question, "Did you watch this?" is always no. With me, no, I did not watch it. Unless you're talking about like uh, a rap, vi- video? Rap, rap videos from 1994, <laughs> I most likely have not seen it. So, but that I think that was the premise behind Lincoln, right? Like, I think it was so. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah Lee Lewis's joke. I must, yeah, I must free the slaves, you yeah. know. And it's it's like sort of the hard decisions oh of, of great men, right? Um, I think that's how probably. But I, it'll but be I think like oh no. There were people who were grappling with all that stuff more seriously in a different time period, right? I think Lincoln being Lincoln is not just because of there's always this. No, no, that's what I mean. But we don't remember it that yeah, way. Yeah, how like, do we, we don't fix say our like, history? We don't say like yeah. we don't say like John Brown right. doing Harper's Ferry. We live in a shitty time. I don't know. Like hopefully, oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Andy, come on! You're supposed to fix history. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is the question I'm still trying to figure out: like, is neoliberalism over or not, and what's next? Um, 
Yeah. And uh, if if class politics can be talked about publicly again, then maybe people will talk about this stuff through those lens. But you know, if it doesn't, it's happening. You know, it's happening. Yeah. Okay, we're at an hour fifteen on this one. We should transition, but uh, look, just I thought this was a alarmingly good essay. And thank you for the shout out to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the reason why we're talking about it, but we certainly appreciate it. Didn't it um, um, <laughs> it didn't hurt. No, it I, I was, I don't know. I felt like, uh, you know, sometimes you read stuff and then you feel insane, you know, and then you read something you and you're like, way? oh, no, because oh, you just feel way. like I, nobody is seeing things the way that, yeah. I f- you know, and then sometimes you read something and you're, you feel much more you feel like sort of comforted that other people are seeing things in a similar yes. way, you know? And I just like the stuff with like the, I don't know, like the burning of the police station, sort of national protest, unprecedented before. It's just, it makes me crazy to think about how much people don't remember that and only talk about it in the context of a slogan that came out of it and whether or not that helped like somebody win a house seat or not, you know? Yeah. And, um, that's where we're at right now, though. That's sort of the conversation. So I'm glad that a lot of it is going to be reoriented. And I think that the, you know, the people who like this thing and who, you know, a lot of them are thinkers that, you know, that that will influence things. So I don't know. I, I thought it was like a very necessary and powerful intervention. Um, okay. So the other intervention piece is Brendan's piece, which I think is 100% an in- intervention, right? And it's it's sort of about the question that we posed before, right? Like, what do we do? Um, you know, um, and so, uh, I want to read a piece of it for you and we can talk about it and, you know, um, and this is him sort of talking about what organizing does. And he says, this is a power of organization of more specifically party building to provide discipline, focus and direction to the chaos and upheaval of movements to the romantic who waxes poetic about the force and vibrancy of the people in the streets. Organization might look like a moderating, even a conservatizing force. Movements and activity are exciting. History is in motion. This, we are told, is what democracy looks like. Hundreds, thousands, sometimes millions of ordinary people flooding public spaces. In comparison, another two-hour meeting of the outreach subcommittee of the working group to draft a proposal for the adoption of a new priority campaign seems immensely, immeasurably dull. Okay, Tammy, what do you think about that? You as the the organizer person. (laughs) I feel seen by Brendan. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I think that's most people's perception. Do you guys agree? I mean, I think people think this is so dreary. Why does this take so much time? Why am I investing in this? Um, It's frustrating. I don't like talking to people who don't agree with me. Um, There's too much process. Like, I've definitely felt all of those things. And yet. Yeah. Isn't it also just like an extra super 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 uphill battle in the U.S. compared to other countries where there's more of a level playing field and it isn't so like volunteers on their own free time spending their own money to challenge these gigantic machines like this, this like it does sound really like unnecessarily cruel the way the way this stuff happens in the u.s well, why do I you say that what do i i don't know i've like from what i from what i've heard like in other countries like you know there's like limitations on like airtime for different political candidates there's limitations oh, on funding for different parties so it doesn't this like huge uphill battle and I just feel like people in the U.S. are overworked all the time, anyway. But that—that's that, like electoral organizing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like one of the things that—and look, this—I am not the first person to say this, but I think that it should be said—is that 
I don't know. I have a friend who was, you know, basically last week or two weeks ago, was just like, I'm just not an activist or an organizer. And I was talking to him about it. And in the end, it wasn't like, I don't want to talk to people or I don't care about this thing. You know, it was like he legitimately could not see where his labor would go. And I, um, Has I he ever tried? Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of the problem, right, is that uh, before it was like, not to wax so nostalgic about the 50s or whatever, but it was like, <laughs> we'll get, you know, like the Simpsons where it's like, dental plan. And it was like, we'll get a dental plan. Listen, he's racist. It's hard when the stuff is like anti-racism, you know, that you're organizing against, right? Or, uh, or racism that you're organizing against. These things are a little more vague, right? How do you organize against stopping, for example, uh, Asian atta- attacks on Asians, right? It's hard. Like, what do you do? Um, how do you see the labor? You know, what do you do? Do you buy all buy guns and go on foot patrols? Probably pretty effective, you know. But what if that doesn't reflect your politics, right? Like, what if you think that that's bad? Then what do you do? You know, well, you get together a bunch of McKinsey consultants and you know, uh, Mastercard and Visa. Did you see this thing? Like, sort of like the <laughs> it's like basically all of the rich Asian like oh, every I did see every that. institution came together oh and basically made a statement against this. Is that what you do? You do it in your workplace it's if like you're a McKinsey Asian consultant, American Foundation, or something, something like, like that, like, right? Like, is that is that that is organizing too, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so. <laughs> No, well, yeah, basically, like, well, I know a lot of other people. I know other people at banks, you know, and like, what if we got together at the banks? Right, right, right. Like, that's that's also organizing, right? And um, I don't think we should. Right, right. So I think it's just hard to see. I think it's just hard for people to insert themselves in politics right now. Um, And I think that's part of the reason why it's hard. I don't think it's just the work part of it. I think it's just like lack of clarity around like what they could actually get out of it with the Bernie campaign obviously it's like yeah. this guy will be president you know um I at this the, point i don't know yeah i thought the context of this was dsa am i wrong right like how dsa kind of represents no i think this part is much metaphor, more i think this part I is much more you know i think this part is more general okay. like the part that i just read i would say something controversial maybe which is to your friend everybody has a responsibility to organize in something everybody has a responsibility to belong to something to commit to something and to do it outside of their job why because that's what it is to belong to like a polity and to commit ourselves to one another like i I, I know can i tell you what he would say to you (laughs) sure let's let's play it out i think he would be like (laughs) i think he would be like yeah i I agree with you and then he would smile and be like yeah you know i'm gonna try and then he would just you know be like wow you know, <laughs> that, that was a lot to process. <laughs> I mean, I can't why, control why his should, behavior, why unfortunately. Should be, why should but... be so aggressive? <laughs> Isn't the first time someone said that? Um. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that is the end of the essay, though, right? Like, right, right. Several, right. several quotes about how it's good to feel like you're part of something, how the individual can still be part of something bigger, but still an individual. And it's just like, I think you need to find the thing that moves you. Like, it may not be any of these things we've suggested or articulated or like what most people even consider organizing. Like, I don't want him to either do the, I don't want him to do the MasterCard organizing either. But it might be, you know, I don't know, something about like just your local park, like making sure it's well kept or, you know, I mean, it could be something so small. Um, And some of those, you know, small and sort of like suburban formations have obviously been very harmful in the past. But I think, you know, I would I would say like we have a little bit of a problem of belonging right now. And like that's I think something Brendan is concerned about in the piece. 
Right, right. Yeah, I don't think that he is being didactic at all. I, in fact, I really appreciate, first of all, I appreciate two things about this piece. The first is that it was kind of, it was funny. So funny. And, yeah, it was like written in this tone where I was nice. just like, I'm just glad that somebody is talking to me about this stuff in a, you know, without like, I mean, it does start with like a, I forget, Lukács or whatever, like the, like, <laughs> but, but then it, but then, but but then it, there's a joke, like two graphs later, Yeah, right? it's sort of like, haha, I did this, you yeah. know, and then, it, and then it becomes like a very, like, kind of like cool and accessible conversation about this type of question, which I, you know, yeah. I, I think that's the right tone. Um, uh, the I other agree. part that I appreciated was just that, like, I, I think that some, that we probably do have to talk this question out, right? That sort of, you know, I don't know. I keep going back to this. I, I listened to that entire dig episode and then I was like. So I haven't listened to that yet. Do you want to just quickly summarize it? This is the one on Ultra oh, yeah, Left. Yeah. Ultra uh, Left. Ultras. People should listen to it. It was, it was two, <laughs> it was two Bernie, um, it was two Bernie supporters. Yeah. And my friend uh, Mindy. Right, and um, a oh, professor oh, of yeah, at uh, who is a professor of philosophy at Georgetown, I believe, mm-hmm. and also has done a lot of organizing work. And it was, uh, you know, sort of a question of like, are people like Jimmy Dore, or like, are people who are doing force, you know, force the vote, are Twitter mm-hmm. people on Twitter who are sort of saying let's do a general strike, like, are they crazy? And I don't think they would use that term, but that was sort of the tone of it, right? Like, like, are they just making shit up and, you know, having yeah. a fantastical vision of politics where none of these things are actually going to work? And I, you know, I agree with them. Like, the idea that there's going to be a general strike because people are tweeting about it is crazy, yeah. you know? <laughs> this was the question posed on the podcast, like, who are these people? Right, what do they right. achieve? And okay. what should we do about it? And, okay. You know, I think the reason why people got mad about it is because they basically, you know, like there is a form of it where you could read it as them pathologizing these people as being naive, you know, oh, and I saying see. that like, oh, I used to be like that, but now I'm not, you know, gotcha. now I now I put together spreadsheets and stuff like that. And um, I don't know. It's uh, that's where I think the part where Brendan is talking about whether it organized can, can be seen as a conservatizing type of effect. That's where that comes from, which is just like, well, you know, one day, young buck, you'll stop screaming about abolition and you'll join your community policing board. Gotcha. Right? Like, that's the type of uh, <laughs> tone that could have been read into it. Now, I don't necessarily think that's what they were saying, but I could actually understand why people would take it that I way. I really, okay, that's why. Right. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, to be fair, I was listening to it while driving across Mount Tam, which is like this crazy drive where you just like go around all these curves and then my kid vomited in the middle of it oh, and so i might have missed something <laughs> because i was stressed out but, but that's what i heard at least Poor yeah kid. Oh. yeah we were we were going to belatus which is you know what's that it's like a beach in marine county um oh, okay. it used to be this hippie town where all these like Beatnecks used to live like Richard Bradigan is you know lived in Bolinas for a while, and uh, it's it used it's like kind of like the funky beach town, but obviously mm. in the last ten years the real estate prices have I don't know ten x mm. or something like that, Easy. and so if you want a house in Bolinas now it's like five and a half million dollars. Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no wonder she Richard- vomited. <laughs> we don't hear about these house prices. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Anyway, um, and it's a it's a if there's a south swell, it's a great place to go surfing. Um, oh, cool. But uh, yeah, it's it takes a while to get there, 
and um, it's very expensive now. Uh, anyway, not to talk about Bolinas. Andy, what, what were you saying? Um, am I wrong in reading Brenda's piece and being pretty critical of the force the vote? Yeah, like, yeah, for right? sure. Yeah, right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that kind of struck me in this, in particular, Africa, who's who's talking to, but someone says something like, "The closer you get to the top of these polit- the political world, the more you realize it's all smoke and mirrors." Which strikes me as probably true, though, although I've never come close to where that person is talking to, <laughs> talking about, right? But it does, it does seem like this weird moment where if you live in the sort of hyper-reality of the internet and YouTube or whatever, like celebrities, like, I don't even know this Jimmy Dore guy has actually ignored this whole thing. Yeah, I don't know who he is either. <laughs> yeah. But he seems to have like a huge hold on, you know, millions of you know, followers and so on. And, and he could temporarily like, kind of be like this kind of messianic figure. Um, for a bunch of people and um, it's probably like not healthy to kind of people get like whiplash just like jumping from one celebrity figure to another celebrity figure it's like for a few months Bernie or AOC is the hero then a few months later someone comes forth comes after them and it well, does, they like position themselves to the left of AOC yeah and yeah. it seems like this is not healthy <laughs> this is not a healthy way to do these things right that, yeah. that does make me nostalgic for just old-fashioned having an organization with memberships and you know, being able to like call on people to vote the right way or do whatever, right? Um, I, I think it's useful to have like an antagonist to AOC, though. You know, now I don't know if I would use, I don't know if I would attack AOC in these ways, you know, but I don't know. I, I'm yeah. somewhat worried at this point about like sort of the inevitability that people seem to be saying, being like, well, our next big fight will be electing AOC president. You right. know, I'm just like, yeah. I don't, first of all, I don't really want to wait that long. And secondly, <laughs> you know, are we sure? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 yeah and uh, I remember a conversation I had with a community organizer in AOC's district right after she won and was rising. And uh, this person said, you know, the previous guy was pretty good to us too. You know, in other words, like Crowley, for, Crowley. <laughs> Crowley like yeah. in other yeah, words, the, for the these guy people. Who played, what did he play? He played like Born to Run or something like that when he <laughs> oh, lost. Yeah. That was so that was like weirdly touching. He to looks me. like a soccer coach. Um, <laughs> First of all, he seemed kind of relieved to lose. You know, he did. He's he like, whatever, cool. You know, it was very <laughs> strange. <that laughs> Let me play the guitar. Yeah, I know. He like, toasted her that night. <laughs> yeah, he's like, like, did. didn't he's look like, that did. surprised. Like, yeah, really? Like, I did not. He's like, well, yeah, sure. I mean, whatever. You know, I just yeah. lost this election. I wasn't supposed to lose. It was the weird. <laughs> Who yeah. cares? Um, uh, you know, we as long as we have our guitars out here, we might as well just play the song. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, um, um, but anyway, yeah. The point of the community organizer was like, we are still doing the same thing with AOC. Mm-hmm. Like, she hasn't shattered right. our universe. She right. hasn't like remade everything. But she's great, you right. know. And right. I think like that seems like a reasonable thing. I mean, at the same time, like. You know, I think if we think about, you know, leftist parties that exist and actually have durability in other countries, like, are you guys hungry for that? Like, I kind of am. Like, I think it would be really nice to have a party that I felt represented most of my beliefs and that I could actually throw myself in with. And I, you know, and I think DSA obviously is trying to straddle this line where it's, you know, potentially gesturing towards the creation of a party but it's not really doing you know it's not really running its own candidates it's kind of acting like a left caucus type situation for the dems yeah um you know and and so i i think brendan's struggling with that as like someone who believes in this project but is like what do we do here what's actually like the scope of possibility in the u.s where we've never had this 
Yeah, I think people get too mad at DSA and make too much of it, you know, of little things like, you know, little, like, things that happen in local chapters and saying, oh, that's horrible, you know. Yeah, and I I think overall it's, you know, probably a force for good and it's hard to argue otherwise. Like, you know, it's not like, it's not like they're siphoning votes away from the Democratic Party or anything like that, so you can't even do that type of doomsday scenario, you know. And they they are getting people elected who are great, and I don't know. It's 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 difficult. Um, the last Would thing you I think critique sh- it from the left though, which is like they aren't doing enough to actually build something separate. Well, like, do you guys I, ever feel that way? I mean, I think you know. I, not to make everything about AOC, I think she was correct to say that, that though that like in another country she wouldn't be in the same party as a I don't know yeah. a Biden or Bloomberg obviously right sure. and I think as long as people are clear eyed about that and we don't have a magic wand to create eight different parties overnight mm-hmm. you know it's a good start you know at least it kind of uh, uh, what's the word disabuses of this fiction that we have to maintain democratic unity. Mm. Um, at all times but you know we'll see i mean she might you know if if you're too far left within the party you might get disciplined i mean that's Mm -hmm. we've seen that happen well that's my thing with aoc which is just like all the things that have to happen for aoc to actually be the democratic nominee for president are not Mm -hmm. things that are going to be make a lot of people on the left happy you know and so Mm. now is she better than you know running uh pete Buttigieg 100 percent you know but i don't know i don't really I don't care so much about these projected ideas as much as um, maybe I should. The last thing I want to read from Brendan's piece is, uh, you know, and I want us to respond to it is just uh, this last part that he puts in the piece, which is just like, in other words, the social movements that do exist are not yet organized in such a way that translates their cultural force into class-based political power. But taken together, the Sanders campaign and the uprising against the police that followed in its wake show that the social basis for such movements might lie in an alliance of low-wage and high-debt workers increasingly, but not exclusively, concentrated in socially reproductive industries like healthcare, education, and the public sector. Quote, a socialist program that confronts white supremacy as its immediate object rather than trying to find a majority by navigating around the edifice of white supremacy is the principle of unity for this block, historian Gabriel Wanant wrote, argued last year. He goes on and says, this is Gabe going on, the relative social disconnection between the different parts of this hypothetical block itself emerging from the disorganization of the American working class is the reason it appeared in two parts, the campaign and the uprising, rather than one. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What, 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 what do you think about that? Like this, like what, what, like sort of Gabe's, uh, I don't know him, so I don't know what I'm calling him Gabe, but like, you know. Um. <laughs> He's Andy's friend, right? So it's okay. We're colleagues, okay. We're colleagues on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all we are. All Our of us old are. buddy oh. Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> um, why do you, like, do you think these two can, first of all, do you think these two can be fused in any sort of way? And secondly, do you actually, do you agree with his analysis on this? Yeah, I mean, I think what he's getting at is that um, to the extent there was a uh, sort of more identifiable social base of people in manufacturing that belonged in unions that could be kind of rank and file, right, that um, those jobs have disappeared in a large part. We've already talked about this with the Bessemer episode. And they've been replaced by jobs that have that are very you know precarious and flexible, and so the question is like how do you pick it up? And and as a result, people who, from an economic standpoint, belong in the same class might not see themselves in the same class, and that's why they would respond to different political, 
you know, moments. So like, you know, Occupy is one moment, Bernie is another moment, and, you know, um, George Floyd is another moment, even though so from a strictly economic standpoint, you know, everyone is basically a wage employee of a massive corporation, right? Um, but it gets segmented <laughs> racially and geographically and so on and so forth. I think that, I mean, I think that's, I think it's correct to say, like, this is the, this is the goal. This is the question, you know, like, could this be, be forged? You know, who knows if, it, if it'll, I mean, this is the question. I, when I read that passage, Jay, I was also wondering, like, is that the social base of DSA and of Bernie? Because right. I kind of thought, we, like, we know that it's actually like mostly like very highly educated, um, um, like middle-class people who are joining these organizations and they're not nearly as, um, well, DSA, sure, but not the Bernie campaign, right? Yeah. Is it? I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't know. Or, Bernie, don't know. or I'm, I'm sorry, Bernie voters. Yeah. You know? Um, I think, I mean, again, this is also gets to the question of like national versus local. Maybe in some, some local races, it was very much working class, but again, it was like, um, it was, it was uh, coded as more about like immigrant communities, right? Rather than like the class they belong to or the, or the, um, or, you know, I guess like with the... But those immigrant communities were pretty working class. Yeah, 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 right. Like the hospitality workers in in Nevada, for instance, right? Um, And yeah, so in some cases, like, I think that does happen. But I think like this, what what, I think what what they're getting at, there's this classic formulation of a sort of, you know, uh, ethnically homogeneous working class that sees themselves as part of one group and would very transparently and clear in a very clear-eyed fashion vote for their own interests together and that never really has been the case in the united states and it, pre- mm. it probably has been getting more and more disaggregated or whatever you want to call it with um the sort of the last 40 50 years of the you know immigration and ending end of unions and the end of manufacturing and so on and so forth um so yeah right. I, I don't the know the country the country is like not like the starry-eyed project uh vision of like the ILWU or something like that, right? Yeah, it was always just like the white working class that pushed out, you know, to various degrees, the black and Asian and whatever working classes. Now it's even more immigrant and even more disaggregated than before. But immigrants are also the basis of most of the unionization. I mean, so, you know, I think there's a little bit of a swing back or, or there's a different kind of organized base right now that just needs to be that I think the Bernie campaign did a good job of mobilizing, as you were just saying. And, you know, I think in the essay, like he interviews Jonah Furman, who was like the labor outreach person for Sanders. And I think Jonah does a good job. And of, Chuck, the Lor- Chuck Roca as well. Right, right. Yeah. Mm. But I loved what, what Jonah said, which is basically like our main problem is we don't have like a working class that thinks of itself as a working class. And like the Bernie campaign was the first to like articulate that and yeah. offer this like identity that we could cling to. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think... I don't know. I um, can DSA do that? I probably not quite yet. But it <laughs> it's has very re- local, though, right? But it has, yeah, and it has relationships with, like, you know, there are unions that are strong. There are like churches that where you can do a class politics, you know. So yeah. I think like it all depends on, yeah, what what the sort of web of relationships is around a particular part of DSA. Yeah. Is he making essentially like a rainbow coalition argument here? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't mean that like jokingly, you know. No, like, yeah, I think so. Right. I think I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know as much about the Rainbow Coalition as you do, so I don't. You, but you said you don't think Bernie was a Rainbow Coalition. Well, I well, uh, it it depends. Now, 
I mean, I just think about sort of the criticism that happened to the Bernie campaign around South Carolina, mm-hmm. where like yeah. he had right. Jesse Jackson come in last second, you know, yeah. and like, why didn't you do that? Why didn't sure, you make sure. your whole campaign about having like people like Jesse Jackson on board with you um, and run what you did in Nevada nationally, you know? Um, and uh, now the Bernie people will say we did that, right? But um you know, and we did the best that we could, but I don't know. Like, I think that's hard to say that they did the best that they could to sort of emulate that type of thing. I have no idea if that would have worked or not, you know? Um, And, but I think that when saying like having this sort of united against white supremacy type of, that's, that's what I go to. So I don't know. That's what I was asking. Like, what does that mean? Like having Mm -hmm. sort of a working class that's united against white supremacy. Um, I'm not quite yeah. sure because I don't really know what that term means at this point, you know. Um, I think, yeah, I think what Gabe meant there is just that instead of working around white supremacy in the sense of trying to build, like, different ethnic coalitions right. that don't hate each other, but perhaps excluding ones that do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just to, like, confront it and be like, what do we have in common? We're all of the same class. Basically trying to bring, bring back class analysis. That's what right. I think he was trying to say there. He's having white supremacy stand in for basically like the oppressor class. Yeah, but I don't think that he's saying that we should be class reductionists and just talk about class, though, you know? I think no, I don't think so either. I think he's saying the opposite. That- yeah, I felt like in the in the piece, um, in a way, Gabe, because Jonah's argument follows right after Gabe's, like they are right. slightly different. Like Gabe is saying that if you look at the constitution of the working class, they're they're mostly black and brown. And, like, it's okay to acknowledge that and to, like, then try to see if there's some sort of, like, racial piece that you can use as, like, an organizing factor. And I think Jonah was saying something more open, which is, or broader, which is just, like, we need to figure out, like, whatever it is working class is and, like, convince people they are. Or maybe he's trying to, he's he's being critical of the sort of, uh, what is the word, like, demographic is destiny type of argument. Right. Jonah is. Well, I, I think Gabe is or trying to. Gabe is. Yeah. What he says, trying to navigate around the edifice of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That seems to be like a sort of mainstream of just like, let's just use identity politics to win all the POC votes mm-hmm. and ignore the fact that the GOP basically gets the majority of white voters in this country. And he's saying, maybe we can get some. Oh, less so now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, but he's saying, like, instead of giving up on the white working class, you know, I guess. Right, you know, right. Not totally. to bring up the five-year-long debate we've been having in this country. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that study came out, a study or poll, whatever results came out today showing that basically the Democrats are just going to need white men, you know, to keep voting Democrat. It was just the opposite of what it was, you know, the thinking was. Oh, okay, yeah. Right. Um, I didn't see that. Those are white women and, and POCs generally are you know, making up a large, made up a large percentage of Trump's support in a way that was totally unexpected and that yeah. all the exit polls, everything like that, where people were like, let's not look too deeply at these exit polls. It's just like, okay, they looked deeper at the exit polls and they found out that the first conclusion was correct, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know what type of fucked up politics that's going to lead to in, in <laughs> for the Democratic so Party going bizarre. forward. Oh but all I know is that, like, you know, I can imagine Robbie Mook types sort of like, uh, you know, punching shit into like a, into like some sort of modeling system and being like, okay, what we need to do is we need to save ba- Major League Baseball. Weirdest platform ever. <laughs> Comedy clubs. <laughs> <Yeah>. Hockey. <laughs> oh, God. 
Yeah, um, you know, like uh, let's uh, let, let's have a program to extend youth soccer. You know, um, <laughs> like shit like that. You know, like, because um, that's 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 sort of the base of support. And it, you know, if you feel like those uh, minority voters are gone. Right, which I think that they should think that they're gone. Right, um, somebody you know who's close to the show and who I trust a lot brought up this interesting point because she had heard me go on for about this sort of swing in Asian voting for like mm-hmm. five straight episodes, and she was like, "You know, I agree with what you're saying, but I also think those people are not persuadable." You know, and then I thought about it and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's right." You know, um, they're gone. The right? people who voted for Trump, right? Like the right. first gen WeChat. Kind of yeah, they're gone. Action, what are you gonna you know? do? Yeah, you're gonna go tell Kenny Zhu, hey, you know, like, what about Bernie Sanders? You know, or <laughs> have you ever <laughs> thought about the welfare state? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I don't believe they're gone. Go- so her argument gone. was, we can't devote our organizing resources to those people. Write them off and move on. Yeah, that like sort of hmm. thinking about how do we get it back to like whatever 80% of Asian Americans voting for Hillary Clinton or something like that is uh it's over. Um or Bill Clinton. Yeah, that 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 we are going to have to accept that there was some regression here um from the big swing from the Reagan era to now, which I think is, you know, at, like completely absent of everything. The numbers of Democratic voters amongst this population, given their sort of, uh, you know, diversity of places that they're from, et cetera, obviously was never going to stay at that level. Like it was always going to regress back. So um, I don't know. The Democratic Party might just conclude that they need you know, to really double down on white dudes. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, man. <laughs> this is so bleak. That's a dark, that's a dark well, that's, future. But that oh, is wow. also the basis of a lot of this, you know, a lot of the critiques about this stuff. You know, about like radical politics yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or um, you know, don't say these words like that. That's that's under the understanding of that's sort of mm-hmm. the reality right now. And again, I would like to ignore it, but I find it generally impossible to say, like to dismiss. Um, well, we're just going like to organize and do enough cultural and political interventions yeah. so that this is no longer a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, we just have to change that. Yeah, and I thought the takeaway from our <laughs> conversation with Hua was that if you engage these groups in a local level, um, that that would help. I, I still feel like most Asian immigrants, even if they're you know anti-communist or anti-CRT, critical race theory or whatever, if you're just like <laughs> if they know what it is. higher wages and social welfare, they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's great. I still, I still believe that, but I might be you know, operating with universalist assumptions that are wrong. Yeah. Um, I think that's true. I hope so. Okay. We're at an hour (laughs) 45. It's too long. Oh, wow. Um, That was a fast conversation, though, mostly because the source material was so good. Yeah. Um, So, you know, thanks to both of you for writing those pieces and giving us a lot to talk and think about. Uh, I, yeah, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. You can keep supporting us at patreon.com slash pod or goodbye.substack.com. There's a paid subscriber option there, and you can join our gigantic Discord community and do things, the fun things that we do, which include now 
book clubs. There's a huge picnic in New York that I didn't get to go to because I don't live there. But I don't know. How many people do you think went to the picnic? Like 60 or something? Maybe seven. I think at least 60. 60 or 70. Tammy, I still haven't paid you back for that, so remind me. (laughs) And um, How is that appropriate time to talk about this? (laughs) And L.A. People met up in L.A. People met up in L.A. And we're going to meet up in Seattle soon. There's all these things happening on there, like uh, conversations about you know, I don't know, uh, really great stuff. People use it as an organizing <laughs> tool as well. So yeah, please come and join. Um, and uh, if you don't, you can still sign up for the newsletter for free. So And you can get the <laughs> about 60% of the episodes. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, our email is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at TTSGpod. All right, great. Let's end the show. So long. Um, so long. See you next week. All right, bye. <laughs>